From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What if you could train a machine to do at least some of what a psychologist does, like listen to patients and detect mental health issues? What time did you wake up this morning? About 8.30. Are you sad today? Artificial intelligence could enhance what a therapist does, help out where there are shortages, but it's not all sunshine and robots. Then, CPR series Teens Under Stress tackles academic anxiety. Listeners share how they cope, like giving negative thoughts a name. I call him Clyde. So it helps me to separate my anxiety and depression from who I am as a person. I ultimately have the control over the situation. Plus, a rock and roll photographer who tries to capture the quieter moments on stage. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mental illness is usually diagnosed by people, but artificial intelligence might also help, especially when there aren't enough providers. Peter Foltz is a professor at the Institute of Cognitive Science at CU Boulder. He's published a paper weighing the risks and benefits of using AI in psychology. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much, Ryan. Okay, this sounds futuristic, maybe a little cool, but uh, why do you think we need this? Well, I think there's there's a number of uses for this. And I mean, the basic idea behind all this is that language really is a window into people's mental states. And we can use computers to be able to analyze that language. And there's many cases where people have mental illness and they're not able to see clinicians regularly. And computers can be used to help analyze this and detect whether there's important changes happening in these people and whether then a clinician should be alerted or a person should go into a clinic. Do you think that this would benefit rural areas, perhaps in particular? This actually is ideally suited for rural areas. Um, The idea of this is that people can take a small assessment on their iPhone and uh, it sends the data back to a clinician. The clinician is reviewing it, and it can alert the clinician. So even if a person can't get into a clinic or a person is remote, they can know whether it would be more important for them to go uh, visit the clinic. Okay, so this uh, really helps professionals triage and know which cases to react to more urgently, perhaps? Could it could it make clinicians better at their jobs, maybe identify cases they otherwise would have missed if they have a big caseload? Yes. I think the, the idea of this really is triage. I mean, a lot of people think about AI as like, oh, no, the AI is going to replace the clinician or the role of what a human does. And we don't believe that this is there to replace what humans do. We like to think about it as a tool to help the clinician. And in this case, you know, a clinician can have hundreds or even thousands of patients that they should be monitoring, but they may see those patients only once or twice a year. And so if they can get more data about how those patients are doing much more regularly, they can know which ones they need to focus on. So in a sense, it's a way of helping them be more alert to how various different patients are doing, how they're responding to different medication without having to, you know, have them come into the clinic or physically go out and see them 
or wait for them to call in and report how they're doing. Ah, so this isn't just about diagnosis. Diagnosis. It's also about tracking a patient's state, progress. So we're, we're talking here about machines essentially learning to do some of what professionals do. And one skill a psychologist develops is to ask questions of a patient and listen not just to what they say, but how they say it. And to that end, you've developed this app that poses a lot of questions, analyzes people's responses, and the first questions are pretty straightforward. What time did you wake up this morning? About 8.30. Are you sad today? Not sad. Very sad. Okay, so that last one is a multiple-choice question that the patient answers. Uh, None of that strikes me as rocket science. Uh, If someone answers very sad, you know, a person or a computer can flag a problem. But what are some of the more involved questions and interactions that you think artificial intelligence could analyze? So, I mean, we start off with some very simple questions to ask them. And and indeed, if they say something like they're very sad, the computer will ask them to follow up and ask them why they're feeling so sad. And we take what they say and we analyze it. But then we get into much more involved types of activities, which a lot of it which uses language. So we may do things like have them see a picture and then they just have to describe out loud what they're thinking when they see this picture. Or they might have the, the iPhone read a short story to them and ask them just to repeat back the story. And they might be later asked to recall the same story. And for all of these things, we're looking at a lot of different features. So we're looking at what they remember, what they don't remember. We're looking at changes in their voice. Is their affect really flat or are they very animated? We're looking at the kinds of words they use and uh, how well they put together the sentences. So we can look for how coherent they are or whether they tend to go off topic. All of these are various different kinds of indications of problems, and we can track these and say from day to day, how is any particular person doing? But we can also track all those features relative to general population and say, do these does this person look very different from somebody we would uh, expect to be in this state? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about artificial intelligence and its potential applications in therapy. And I want to unpack just a few of the examples you gave there. So you might show someone an image and have them describe it. It Strikes me as like a Rorschach test. Uh, Is the idea that if you show them a landscape and their description I don't know, um, casts a negative view of the beach scene or something, that maybe they're depressed. Um, Yes. I mean, we would say, I wouldn't say that that allows us to diagnose they're depressed. It may say that we're seeing some indications of depression if they tend to uh, be more negative, uh, if they tend to uh, be able, uh, if they tend to describe it in a way that is very different from the picture, then we might say, okay, they're, they're not able to really stay on the topic or they seem to be derailing. Um, And what the artificial intelligence is doing is actually comparing their response against a lot of other responses that people have been done before. And we can use that as the basis to say, how normal or abnormal is this kind of response to, uh, to that particular picture? Okay. So this is also about big data. And then help us understand why memory is a potential red flag or a lack of retention? 
memory is, is very important, and you can see deficits in memory in a lot of different kind of, 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 of um, mental disorders, you know, particularly in areas like mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. And so in this, we include a number of different ways of tracking both a person's short-term memory, which is what they can hold in memory for just a few seconds. And so they might see something like, uh, they'll see some numbers flash up on the screen and then they have to remember the order that those numbers uh, flashed up on the screen. Or they might hear a story and then have to recall that story immediately and then recall that story five minutes later. And what we're really interested in is how much information decays over those five minutes. Do they still remember that story? Which details stay there, which details are lost. And we can use that as the basis to see, are there different types of memory that are being affected and how quickly are they losing that kind of information? Peter Foltz, I, just before the show, was on a call with like an automated system that was asking me for my birth date, for instance, you know, to identify myself. And uh, I kept saying, my birth date January 22nd, something, something. And it like barely understood me. I mean, we've all been on the phone and been enormously frustrated with these sorts of systems. How far along is this really? And is it dangerous to bring this kind of technology to a field that really is people-driven, is connection-driven? Well, that's actually one of the major points of our paper is that we want to make sure that when this is being used, that it's being used in the appropriate and most careful ways. And so we lay out some things that are needed to be done in the field in order to ensure that when we deploy these kinds of, of tests uh, on a much larger scale, that we can ensure the public, the clinicians, uh, the whole community trust what they're being used for. And so we want these to be used in a way that people feel that they they trust what the results are. We also want it so the clinicians realize what the benefits are, but also where the limitations are. So this is not just something you hand out and just say, oh, this will diagnose someone. This is just a tool, and it can be used in the right way. It can be used in the wrong way. And a lot of what we're trying to lay out is let's have a framework for understanding how these tools can be used where they can be used, and how they fit into the medical community. And that patients don't feel like they've been pawned off on a machine, you know, sent, sent over here to deal with the computer. The patients often don't have much chance to interact with uh, clinicians anyway. And what we're trying to do is actually have an app that is fairly engaging, that has them do a number of different tasks, but also be short enough that it's not very frustrating. And so it's just something that they can do once a day or once every few days and uh, only takes five to 10 minutes. But it's it's really designed not to say this is replacing what the clinician does. Um, and we still encourage patients to see the clinician just as much as they do. But at the same time, we're providing the clinician with a lot more information about the state of the patient. Peter, thanks so much. It's been fascinating. Well, thank you very much. Peter Foltz is a research professor at CU Boulder's Institute of Cognitive Science. We talked about artificial intelligence in the diagnosis, perhaps even treatment of psychological problems. His work appears in the journal Schizophrenia Bulletin. 
And speaking of mental illness, stigma, of course, is a big problem. Today, the state launches a campaign to fight stigma. See Me is a campaign started in Scotland, which showcases the stories of people living with mental illness. The Democratic presidential field is narrowing. Five candidates have left the race since the start of November. One who's still hanging on is Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. CPR's Caitlin Kim has this story. Bennett's outlasted fellow Coloradan John Hickenlooper. He's outlasted candidates with higher name recognition and larger campaign war chests like Beto O'Rourke. And he's outlasted candidates who were still earning spots on the debate stage like Kamala Harris. Bennett's long-shot presidential push continues, like the little engine that could. But how? I think that his campaign is being smart with the money that they have raised. That's Jennifer Holdsworth. She's a Democratic campaign strategist who was a state director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. It appears that he's adopted a strategy of slow and steady, and I think that's working for him. Think tortoise and the hare. Holdsworth says Bennett hasn't burned out in part because he's had to operate on a shoestring budget from the start. According to the most recent campaign filings, Bennett's total fundraising was just under $5 million as of the end of September. That pales in comparison to the $35.5 million that Kamala Harris had raised during her campaign for the presidency. $5 million is hardly enough to open multiple state offices, let alone buy significant television airtime. But it is enough for a few paychecks. Look, if you spend it smartly and you have a a really you know, skeletal staff that essentially does everything. Um, It is possible to, you know, stay in through New Hampshire. And Bennett has started to spend some of his limited resources to expand his staff in New Hampshire in the hopes of pulling off a strong showing there. He's also leaning a lot on the one person he doesn't have to pay, himself. Bennett plans to host 50 town halls in New Hampshire between now and the February primary. But Democratic strategist Jim Manley says it's still a very tough climb for Bennett. One of the things they're betting on is that as more and more folks drop out, they can rise uh, up in the polls. His problem in particular is that he's so low uh, that it's going to take one hell of a rise for him to get uh, up into a a top-tier candidate level status. And ultimately, the low-profile approach that's enabled Bennett to stay in the race this long isn't the way to win the race. No one wants to be under the radar screen uh, like that. Everyone wants to be leading the polls. Everybody wants to uh, be dominating the uh, cable news network. Manley says he knows Bennett well enough to know he wouldn't be running if he didn't believe he has something to offer the nation. But the polls show that Bennett's candidacy isn't gaining steam. It's stuck around 1%. And as University of Denver political science professor Seth Maskett points out, We haven't seen a real come-from-behind primary victory like Jimmy Carter or Gary Hart in decades. This is still a a political environment that really, it's kind of built to advantage uh, more established candidates with with name recognition, with national reputations, or or with a lot of money. And, And none of those things seem to you know, pertain to Bennett right now. On the upside for Bennett, though, is that large fields can create a certain amount of unpredictability. And there doesn't seem to be a downside for him to stay in the race. He's not up for re-election next year. And as of now, voters in the state don't seem to mind, let alone resent his absences. And he's developing a national reputation that could still help land him a new job if a Democrat wins in 2020. He could still end up in the next presidential administration. Um, He could be a potential vice presidential candidate. 
I think this is probably helpful to him career-wise, even if it doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't end up with him as president. While polling and money play a large role in whether to continue a race, ultimately, it's up to the candidate to decide if and when to pull the plug. And right now, all indications show that Michael Bennett still plans to keep on chugging along, at least until the first primaries. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And on the topic of elections, CBR News has an invitation for you. We're traveling across the state so you can tell us what you want to hear from candidates, what issues are important to you. Tomorrow morning, my colleagues will be in the town of Hudson, east of Denver. Look for our reporters at the Pepper Pod restaurant on First Street from 7 to 10 a.m. And on Friday, lunchtime, I'll be at the Columbine Library in Littleton to hear from voters. So, Hudson, Colorado, tomorrow, Littleton, Friday. We would love to meet you and pick your brain as we head into 2020. My colleague Avery Lill is here. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. You're part of the team working on our series Teens Under Stress. And the series has inspired a lot of people to reach out. What are they sharing with us? A lot of questions. Some are about what's causing stress, but one of the most frequent questions we get is what solutions are there? How can parents help stressed teens? How can schools help? And how can teens help themselves when it comes to negative feelings that can seem so overwhelming? And indeed, solutions are baked into this project. Absolutely. Another member of the teens team here, CPR health reporter John Daly, followed a listener tip to a school that gives students tools to overcome anxiety like deep breathing. At George Washington High School in Denver, in the dance room, a couple dozen students sit in chairs in a half circle, silent, feet on the floor, eyes closed. You can hear a pin drop. I'm going to ring the tone again and just follow the tone back and open your eyes when you can't hear it anymore. It's Mindful Monday, a new part of the students' PE class. The instructor, Beverly Jacobson, uses the Inner Strength Teen program to teach teens to meditate. She writes on a whiteboard and talks about how culture has changed to make life more complicated and filled with choices. Today we're going to talk about specifically what's most stressful for all of you. Research shows teens today deal with high levels of stress, anxiety, and depression. Studies of adults have shown mindfulness helps ease those conditions. And an emerging body of research shows it may help boost resilience in adolescence via better cognitive performance and emotional regulation. Like you're in a line. Like you're in a line. Everybody's in the middle. For the next activity, the instructors ask the teens to scooch together as a group in the middle of the room. Because we're going to vote by going to one side or the other, depending on your preferences or how you feel. Programs like this are popping up around Colorado and the U.S. to help teens build healthy habits and relationships through mindfulness. One main idea is encouraging students to do some self-reflection. First question this morning, are you shy or outgoing? Extrovert over here, introvert over here. The diverse mix of students vote with their feet on more questions about their everyday lives. Early riser, night owl. (laughs) These are high schoolers. There's just one lonely early riser. Have a smartphone, don't have a smartphone. Social media. Love it, hate it. Do you feel physically safe at school most days over here? Many students signal they feel safe most of the time, but not all the time. Next, Jacobson asked the teens to break into small groups to talk about what adds to their anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I'll say work, school. 
future. Yeah. yeah, that's stressful. Friendships and relationships are really stressful. Oh, yes, relationships are very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and what things make them happy? Music is high on the list. I put my friends. I put my friends. <laughs> Love my friends. They're great. A senior named Quinster says since taking this class, she's a lot better at dealing with life's ups and downs. I get very tensed up, stressed, overwhelmed. So, like, it helps with my anger. It helps with so much I was going through. Like, I easily calm myself now. Um, I meditate a lot now. Teaching teens about the adolescent brain is a key part of this curriculum. 15-year-old Anissa plays basketball and says what she's learned is making a difference on and off the court. I really utilize this class when it comes to like breathing techniques. Those really help a lot. I get a lot of information about how really the brain works and how my brain works and how to like to operate around other people in like certain situations, which I really love. Instructor Beverly Jacobson, a mother of two teens, is a longtime meditator herself. She says there are some hurdles to finding a place for mindfulness in a busy school day. The academic content, college prep, there's never enough time for students to get all of that stuff done. There's never enough money. But she says investing in... Coping skills and just life skills for kids helps them to do all that other stuff. Phys ed teacher Narissa Stahl applied for a modest school grant to pay for this course and says it's worth it. I absolutely think this is the missing piece to the puzzle in education. She says before the course started, some students sought counseling, but now say they have strategies to help them cope. That includes keeping a journal. Stahl says students need to have some time just to focus on their inner selves. She notes they don't have their phones out in class. They crave quietness. Michaela, a senior, agrees. This class, like, eases the pain, like it eases the stress. You just sit down and like you get time to think. As the period ends, students return to their seats. Take a good deep breath in. Feel your weight sink into the chair on the out breath. And after the ring of the bell. Follow the sound of the tone. It's back to their day. I'm John Daly, CPR News. All right, Avery Lill, when we come back, we're going to break down more solutions for handling the pressures young people face. Yes, our audience actually shared ideas based on their own experiences. So we'll explore how pressures on teens today differ from, say, 10 or 20 years ago. Okay, so an exploration of that and more solutions ahead. Colorado Matters and Teens Under Stress continue in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Avery, before the break, we heard how one school is trying to take some of the pressure off teens. Uh, and we've been asking our audience for their memories of school stress. Yeah, and we heard from Megan Gavin of Loveland. She's almost 30, but she still remembers the pressures she felt and the effect it had. It all kind of just slowly weighed me down further and further and further. 
as it went on, and uh, and I ended up having panic attacks, and uh, one of them I passed out in the hallway at my school. Like we said earlier, there are also a lot of questions. We're going to answer some of them. Jenny Brundine is a reporter on the project, and Kate Schimmel is the project's editor. Jenny and Kate, welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks, Avery. Last week, we aired a story about a young woman named Amelia who's really struggling with all the school pressure she feels. It's made her mental health problems worse, and a lot of people wrote in offering advice for her and students like her. Kate, you spoke with Megan, who shared her experience with panic attacks. What advice did she have for Amelia? Yeah, I have to say, first off, we got really empathetic responses to Amelia's story. People had really well-thought-out advice and They just really wanted to help this kid. And Megan was one of those. So we actually asked her to come in and tell us a little bit about what helped her. And she shared this tip that we've now heard a couple times. Uh, She gave her negative thoughts a name. I call him Clyde. So it helps me to separate my anxiety and depression from who I am as a person. Um, It helps me recognize that that's not who I am. It's not who I have to be. It's not going to last forever. I ultimately have the control over the situation. And we also had people write in and suggest things like yoga and meditation, as we heard earlier, taking just a few moments of quiet and deep breathing before taking a test or undergoing some sort of stressful experience. Uh, One piece of advice I think everyone will recognize from their school days, uh, studying over the weeks ahead of a test instead of just the night before can really make you feel a lot more confident and calm. And then I would say reminding yourself that what's done is done. Once the test is over, trying not to let it continue to weigh on you and to find ways to remind yourself that life will go on. So a lot of empathetic responses and some advice. On the flip side, some listeners aren't convinced that teens are under more stress now. Jeremy Leonard asked, is this issue really news? Teen stress, especially related to academics, has certainly been around since I graduated high school in 1984. I appreciate that these teens are dealing with difficult issues, but haven't we always? I appreciate his comment, but I think anybody that has raised teens right now sees that there is a huge difference. And I checked in with some 1984 graduates. One of them is my husband. And he was saying that you really didn't start thinking about college maybe till your latter part of your junior year. You didn't have thoughts about the volunteer work you had to do. You didn't have thoughts about the sports teams you had to be on to get the scholarships, this kind of thing. You pretty much filled out one piece of paper and handed it in and knew you whether you got in within a month. And so I just think they're in a completely different world now. And also the, the, the stress with respect to ACT and SAT scores has really ramped up. I grew up in Canada and we had absolutely none of what the kids are going through now. And in, to this day, there's no college entrance exam. So, but, you know, I appreciate that people have different experiences. And, um, you know, for him, it might have been very stressful. I just, after doing a lot of research on this, I really think they're in a different moment in, moment in time right now. Yeah, this is a question that has come up a lot in reporting this project is trying to make sure that we explain what exactly is different now. One of the things that has certainly changed in a big way is the testing. Students are just taking a lot more tests than they used to. One of the reporters on the project, Ashley Dean, has a story coming up about that exact issue, kind of tracing how we got here. 
And then I would say, yeah, being a teen is a stressful time. But I think that it's worth listening to kids and kind of hearing them out and trying to see mm, how much is relatable and how much we should really believe them when they say this has gone too far. Now, a response in kind of a similar vein, Michael Wunderlich asks, everyone deals with pressure, adversity, self-doubt, low self-esteem at times. Where is the responsibility on the individual to persevere? Well, first, I think teens are desperate for someone to tell them just what Michael said. They don't know that everyone at their age feels like this. They live with social media, and it's a much more judgmental world where everyone seems perfect, right? Um, so they become isolated in their thoughts. And a lot of teens, we learned in the Attorney General's Youth Suicide Report, don't don't have an authentic adult to kind of give them that perspective. Second, the job of a parent is to guide their kid into becoming an adult. And for a segment of the population, and we'll get into this when we get to our parenting section, is that uh, there's a segment of the population mired, I would say, in fear. And that has led to overprotecting children. This leads to feelings of helplessness, dependency, a lack of coping skills and resiliency. And we call these bubble-wrapped kids. And they are very fragile, and teachers have said they're fragile, and this reinforces the parents' urge to overprotect them, and then it kind of leads to a, an anxiety spiral. So in some ways, I think we've created this situation. Yeah, one thing we've talked about a lot in the reporting is the way that we've taken agency and control and responsibility away from young people. So their entire focus has to be on school, on their performance, on how well they're meeting these expectations, instead of having something of a sense that they're responsible for something outside of themselves. And that can really be an empowering feeling that can lead them to feel less stressed out. I think the other part of this is, yeah, every kid is going to have to make their own way and they're going to have to figure it out for themselves. And we really wanted to both describe that one kid's experience and take a look at the system that's making them feel that way and disentangle how much is their responsibility from how much we as a society should be thinking about, is this what we want to be asking of kids? Is this really where we want to set the expectations? So it's kind of holding those things in tension and not saying that anybody's off the hook for being responsible. Absolutely. We also got a lot of responses asking more generally, how do I help my kid? They're having a really hard time. One mom asked, my teen is so depressed, he is completely withdrawn. How do I get him reengaged? How do I help him? Yeah, um, so some depression, obviously, there's a biological predisposition towards that. And some is compounded by some of the things we're talking about in this series, like social media, emotional isolation, anxiety at school, that kind of thing. But experts have told me the first step is probably if your child is out of school to set up a, a meeting with a psychologist, a social worker, a counselor, they can then make referrals to outside help. If a kid doesn't want to do this, um, they're not ready to acknowledge that there's an issue going on, we will be posting um, resources for parents. For example, NAMI is a great, NAMI Colorado, They that's N-A-M-I Colorado, they have incredible resources for parents and support groups. We have Mental Health Colorado, or if you're in Denver, Emerson Street has a lot of support groups and they can help tease out what is regular teen moodiness from chronic depression or anxiety. 
talking to students, what we hear a lot is my parents aren't talking to me about this and I don't feel comfortable talking to them. So if you can find ways to open up that conversation with your kid, if you can find ways to make your home a more comfortable place to have these really difficult conversations, that can do a lot of work before you ever have a more extreme situation where your student is really in crisis. And we're talking to teens for this project, and what they're telling us is that they feel enormous pressure to succeed in school. And what success means varies, but in general, they're worried about test scores, about being in the right extracurriculars, getting into the right college, earning scholarships. Jennifer Roberts asked, how do we, as educators and parents, change the perception for our kids of the high-stakes current system? How do we teach them to seek a balance and reach their post-secondary goals? Oh my gosh, could this question be any bigger? (laughs) So this one teacher, Allison Solove, wrote to us about that specific question. She'd grappled with it herself in her classroom. She'd started to see all of the pressure that she was putting on her students and the effect that was having. And so she changed a few things about how she ran it, including having breathing exercises. We heard that a lot. But she also started having conversations at the very beginning of the year about what students' priorities were. It was something that we went back to when they were stressed out about essay scores or tests that they had taken just to remind them, are you putting the effort into this class that matches with what your priorities are? So she used it to just turn down the temperature on her students. If they were a really serious athlete, she talked to them about maybe letting their grades drop a little. Or if they were really focused on debate club, maybe it was okay to drop something in another area. And I noticed that the the Jennifer Roberts talked about being it being a high stakes uh, system. And I think for parents and teachers, it's important to uh, model that it doesn't have to be high stakes. In other words, high stakes implies that life has no room for error. And that's really not what life is. Life is full of mistakes. It's falling off a path. It's starting one thing and then changing your mind. I think if parents and teachers shared their own stories and about what life is really like and not stress so much the straight-A student that takes a linear path to Harvard because most of us who are happy and fairly successful, that is not the path that we take. And I think the more you can tell students, yeah, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail, um, it'll, it doesn't seem so high stakes. To modeling other forms of success. Yes. Jenny and Kate, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter, and Kate Schimmel is the Teens Under Stress project editor. And that's Avery Lill there. Avery, I'm so taken by this idea of naming your fear and anxiety. I'm thinking Winston for mine. <laughs> have, have you named yours? Oh, I have it, but it is so charming and approachable. I love Clyde. I'm a little sad Clyde. she took the name. <laughs> okay. We want to remind listeners that if you have questions about teen stress, Send those questions our way through cpr.org slash teens or text text us at 555-888 with the words tell CPR, 555-888 with the words tell CPR. Avery, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Our next guest has photographed some of the world's most famous musicians, Tom Petty, B.B. King, Willie Nelson, the list goes on and on. Lisa Siciliano is one of the last remaining rock and roll art photographers. 
For years, she was the house photographer at Red Rocks in the Boulder Theater. We spoke this time last year, ahead of her rocking in a winter wonderland art show. This year's show is tomorrow. And Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. To me, your photos of the gender-bending shock rock hero, Marilyn Manson, really stand out. Thank you. In one photo, he's wearing this spiked feathered (laughs) helmet contraption with his mouth revealing big white teeth. Then there's one in this S&M bodice thing Mm -hmm. with ripped (laughs) pantyhose. How does Marilyn Manson compare to the many other artists you shoot? He's pretty up there as awesome to shoot because, you know, he does have to work for me. He really likes having his photo taken as well. He's one of the few people that lets you shoot the entire show sometimes, and that doesn't happen very often. Oh, is it usually that you get a window? You do. You get one to three songs, generally. There have been a couple times where I've had 60 seconds to shoot. It's kind of crazy. Who puts the 60-second rule Well, there was, um, (laughs) one was uh, Erica Badu, and one was Stevie Wonder. So, yeah, and Stevie was really rough because we weren't even allowed to take our first shot until he played his first note, so we couldn't even take photos of him entering the stage. So that was really rough. When they choose the minute window, what is it you think they're trying to manage? That's what I would really like to know. (laughs) That's a really good question because it's really strange. A lot of it is management itself doing that because the same band won't have the same rules every single time. Ah, if management changes. Yes. So sometimes, you know, like Marilyn Manston, for instance, he let us shoot the whole show twice. And then other times he let us shoot one song. So I don't know if it's how they're feeling. Maybe they're feeling super awesome in how they look or how the show's going. Or maybe it's a bad hair day. Exactly. It could be anything. So I don't try to guess it. A lot of times we don't know until we get there. It's helpful to understand that you are not backstage necessarily with the artists, right? Yes, unless it's a a band that hires me, which happens. I just did a three-run shoot with the Little Smokies, and I was able to go anywhere and shoot the whole show, and I was able to go backstage and on stage. So unless you're being hired by the band, you basically are told where you can stand. Sometimes mm. it's behind the artist. Sometimes it's far away where you can't even see. Sometimes it's right in front. That's ideal when it's right in front and you can move about. So Do you ever get their sweat on you? <laughs> I got spit on before, yeah. <laughs> not, not on purpose. No, not on purpose. Just like the... No. Uh, Femi Cootie had his saxophone and he took the reed out and just... All the spit got, yeah, that was not so fun. (laughs) (laughs) It occurs to me that there are quite a few moments in performance, especially if it's an intense performance, Mm -hmm. where, I I don't really want to put a value judgment on it, but where people are kind of ugly. They're straining, right? Yeah. Um, They're straining to hit a note or they're contorted. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you aim to preserve or... Is that something that you hope to move past and catch something pretty? It depends on the artist. I I feel like every artist is different. Um, A lot of times I try to capture the in-between moments, the quiet moments. So right after that strain, they might stop and look to the side and close their eyes. And 
That's more interesting to me sometimes. I think there's an Alicia Keys photo that you took. There is, like yeah, that. yeah, where she's just kind of looking off to the side. And I do a lot of quiet moments because that's something that you don't really see very often. And it's kind of that in between, like the silent spaces that I like a lot. Some people live for the fortune. Some people live just for the fame. Some people live for the power, yeah. Some people live just to play the game. How did you start in this? Very randomly. It, it was not planned. I was in my 30s already. I was bored. I was working at the Fox Theater as a cocktail waitress. I got out of school, college early, never used my degree. I was actually supposed to be doing what you're doing. Radio. <laughs> yes. And the Fox is in Boulder, by the, the way. Fox Theater is in hill. Boulder. So I was cocktail waitressing there for a long time. And I just brought my, I bought a camera from a neighbor that happened to be selling one. Just brought it to shows with me because back then there weren't a lot of rules. It was very different back then. So I just brought it with me. There was no photo passes. Now to go into the Fox where I've been shooting for 20 years, I need a photo pass. But back then you didn't. So I would have my camera up on the bar during the encore. I'd grab it and go shoot some photos. And sure enough, I did this for a couple months. And then my husband's mom was working at a magazine, a music magazine in New Jersey. And Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were coming to Pepsi Center. I said, oh, that'd be so cool to shoot that. I said, why don't you see if your mom can get me a photo pass? Sure enough, she did, which was kind of a fluke. And I went in and shot that show. My second show was Metallica. <gasps> and I ended up getting a killer shot of James Hetfield, like killer. I sent it on a whim to the guy from Red Rocks. The guy from Red Rocks called me down for an interview and I got the job. So it... the, the job was open of Red Rocks official photographer? Yeah, there was a few of us there. So there was like a team back in the day. And yeah, he went and got a contract and I was like, ooh, I better learn what I'm doing really quick. <laughs> favorite artist to photograph? We've talked about Marilyn Manson. Iggy Pop Iggy is Pop. another huge favorite. I mean, he just... He just lets it go on stage. Slash is another person that I love to shoot. The guitarist. The guitarist, yeah. There's been quite a few. I don't like shooting jam bands because it doesn't really go with my style. What I like is when I can focus in on one person and kind of isolate them in a portrait. So I love blues singers, Etta James, B.B. King, Willie Nelson. But jam bands, which are incredibly popular, of course, in Colorado between uh, The Dead, String Cheese Incident, Mm -hmm. Fish. Mm Mm-hmm. There's just too much going on on For stage. For my style. Or maybe too little. <laughs> Both. <Okay. laughs> it doesn't lend itself to my style. Having done it for as long as I have, I have a specific style, and I know kind of which, which bands work for me and which bands don't. You say that you have a style. How would you describe your style? Black and white for sure, and film always, right? It's all film, yeah. It's all 100% black and white film, and it's very minimalistic. Why film? Still today, it's so retro. I feel like it has an aesthetic that you can't copy with anything else. Like, it's just how some people like to record music on analog as opposed to digital. It just has a quality with shadows, especially, that I really, really love. It just really brings the deep shadows in people's faces and hands out. And I also like how it slows me down because I really need to think about what I'm doing when I'm shooting film. So I'm not going to go out there and just stick the camera above my head and just start firing away. I'm actually 
really looking for a moment. You're being mindful of Very how mindful. much film exactly. you're using because exactly. that's expensive. It's also painstaking because you have to take the film out and replace exactly. it. Exactly. That's the only bummer about film. There are some drawbacks. And sure enough, someone will come do a solo right in front of me right when my film runs out. And I'm like, oh. and it's always the time too. I mean, I've changed millions of rolls of film. And it's always that time if, you know, Slash is right in front of you that you're fumbling with the film and can't get it across. <laughs> but what? I still wouldn't trade it. What is the the f- picture or artist that got away? Oh, well, <laughs> Lemmy from Motorhead, because I've had photo passes to shoot him three times and he was just too ill to come. So I missed it three times. And that's real bummer. I mean, David Bowie's another one, but I never got that close to David Bowie. Hmm. But Lemmy, I actually had the pass in my pocket and he wasn't able to make it. And I feel like both of those artists would really lend themselves to what I do. I feel like in pop music especially, there's real emphasis placed on how a singer or musician looks. Mm -hmm. I guess I just want you to reflect on that a little bit. Like the the talent, the musical talent versus the, the looks. Yeah, I haven't had the chance to shoot a lot of pop artists. I did want to shoot Adele because I felt like, especially with black and white, it would just be really gorgeous with her facial aesthetics. And I didn't, she didn't let anyone shoot her, unfortunately. Oh, really? But yeah, it was kind of a bummer because she's so gorgeous. This was at Red Rocks? It was at Pepsi Center. At Pepsi Center. Red Rocks is such a small venue for Uh, someone like Adele I know, I know. So I think for me... It doesn't matter. Like, Lemmy is not a good-looking guy. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he's rough, and he's got, you know, wrinkles and a big mole. But to me, that's just amazing looking. I don't need perfect. Do you feel like you get into a rhythm with the music? Absolutely, yeah. And there's certain people that I just have not been able to find that rhythm with. Queens of the Stone Age is a band that I've shot three times now, and I just, I love their music, but there's something about the way they move that I kind of can't really find it. A lot of times I do feel like I'm part of the band, you know? It's like, I just can feel the music, even though I don't play music. I live with two musicians. My husband and my daughter are both musicians, and I've been around music forever. So I feel like I could kind of feel it and feel like when something's going to happen, when it's going to flow, when it's going to get quiet, when it's going to get loud. That you can anticipate that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So who's an example of a band, you know, whose music you really connect with as a photographer? Yeah, I think Guns N' Roses and Slash is definitely one of them. Okay. You know, you can really feel the ups and downs of that music. The White Stripes were another one. And uh, blues music. I like blues music a lot. And Buddy Guy is another one that's just... Buddy Guy, the guitarist. Yeah, Gosh, amazing. I, I just saw him at the Paramount. Oh, did you love what it? What a talent. Yeah, I know. And he's like 80-something. Oh. Five long years for one woman. And she had to nerve to kick me out. Okay, uh, leave us with this great story. Okay. You're putting on your 13th annual yeah. rock art show in Boulder, selling prints of your concert photos. And this show has kind of humble 
beginnings. <laughs> Very humble. Yes, when it started 13 years ago, we were extremely poor at the time. And I was just, you know, my career was in its infancy. And and my daughter was three years old, and we needed to buy Christmas gifts. And a friend of mine said, you know what? Why don't you come over with your darkroom seconds? So all the stuff in my darkroom that I was just printing for fun that was just laying around in my darkroom, why don't you bring those over? We'll hang a few. We'll invite people over, and we'll sell the darkroom prints. And we did that. I made like 800 bucks. It was a big success. Christmas and gifts for daughter covered? Was, Christmas gifts for daughter were covered. It was amazing. And other people got to get gifts too because it's really nice to give someone something that's very personal to them. Like, oh, we went to this show together at Red Rocks and it was an amazing experience. And here's a picture from that show. And it's only grown since then. It has, yeah. Well, I have to say, it, it was a gift just to see your photograph of Florence Welch, of Florence and the Machine, she is in this long, flowy, white gown of some kind or dress, and you have caught her as the material is almost enrobing her mid-spin on stage. Yeah, it's she's ghostly. She's, she's one of those ones, too, that just really lends herself to photographs. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Run fast for your mother, fast for your Rock photographer Lisa Siciliano, we spoke last year. Her 14th annual Rocking in a Winter Wonderland is tomorrow in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. <laughs>